So I do encourage you to come back out to our prayer meeting tonight. Uh, as, as Josh said, we're going to be focusing on camp, and it's our first kind of, you know, worship fellowship time in the summer, and we use that to just to build the fellowship within our body, and it's a beautiful evening. Uh, where else would you rather be than spending time praying with us and eating some hamburgers and hot dogs? I, I don't even know what we're eating, but I think that's probably, if I had to put some money down, I think that's where, that's where we'd be. But I, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4. As you're getting settled, Acts chapter 4, one final time. We're closing out this chapter this morning, just continuing to learn what made these apostles, these first century believers tick, what exactly it was that gave them the passion for the mission that I think is certainly undeniable and quite honestly, at least to me, somewhat convicting and challenging. And today we're going to study specifically what it was that held these believers together under such tough and circumstances, under the persecution that they were facing. So I've titled today's message, The Ties That Bind the Church, and I, and I think that there's a lot we can learn this morning about building a church that's unified, that's single-minded and focused, that stays bound together, and because there are spe- some very specific ties that, that keep that binding in effect that we're going to see in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And, and as part and this part of the, the book of Acts, it, it's just sort of a running narrative. So just to, to bring you up to speed, if you haven't been here for the past few weeks, this, this running narrative kind of started in, in chapter 3 with Peter and John. They were on their way to the temple, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, they healed a lame man who was asking for alms or just some sort of monetary handout. And, and the healing caused quite a stir because the man was sat at the temple every day. And he was over 40 years old, and everyone knew him. So this wasn't, you know, just some setup to deceive the onlookers that, you know, unfortunately happens in the name of Christ today. There are faith healers today that bring in people that act like they can't walk, and they come in on wheelchairs, and they get healed and walk out without their wheelchair. The problem is that some of those folks, some of those folks walk on and off the same airplane as that healer because they're all part of the deception together. But that was not the case in Acts chapter 3. There was no doubt this man was healed. And, and when the crowd gathered, Peter started preaching. And he started preaching Jesus to, to all that would hear, to all that were present. And the Sadducees, the other rulers of Israel, didn't like it because they had just crucified Jesus not many weeks before. And so, you know, this, this whole fact of Jesus being resurrected and his apostles healing people through the power of the Holy Spirit, you, you know, that wasn't a good look for them and their leadership qualifications. You know, it maybe it would put their decision-making ability in some question. And so they detained Peter and John, brought them before the Sanhedrin council the next day, and the council threatened them, told them to stop preaching and teaching about Jesus, but ultimately had to let them go because they were afraid of what, what might happen, of what the people might do if they kept them. And so Peter and John went back to the rest of the group and told them what happened. That prayer meeting broke out that we talked, out, talked about last week. And that brings us up to where we're at in Acts 4.31, um, where we left off. Those were the past six sermons I went through there in 90 seconds. But, but, but where we leave off, where we left off, and where we find them today is, is as a very unified and solidified group of believers. They weren't fighting with each other. There was no infighting. They weren't scared, at least not outwardly. In fact, they were very resolute in what they were to do. And it certainly was not to back off of the mission of being witnesses for Christ. And the key to everything that we're going to look at today is found in one verse in our passage. It's Acts 4.32. And we'll obviously take a look at this as as part of the fuller text, the complete text, uh, when we get there. But I want to read this verse now to just kind of set the stage. Acts 4.32. It says, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And there's a... There's some important words, there's important phrases and one whole phrase in there that I, that I want, we'll talk about. That's the phrase one heart and one soul. We've already seen multiple times in our study how they were of one accord. This takes it up a notch. 
that one heart and one soul, and we'll talk about that in more detail, but the point is that they were unified. They were together. They were one. And this was a fulfillment of Jesus' prayer for them. In John chapter 17, shortly before his death, in John 17, verse 11, Jesus prayed, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep, keep through thy own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. And then skip down and, and pick the prayer back up in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, they also may be one in us, that the world may believe thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. And so that was a prayer of Jesus, that, that his apostles would be one, and that everyone that believed the, the word that they were preaching would be one, just as Jesus and his Father are one. And there's, there's some you know, deep theological truth in there that, that we don't even have time to talk about. But, but that's his, that was his prayer. That was his desire. God the Father answered that prayer. And that a prayer doesn't only apply to those 12 apostles and those first century believers. It applies to us as well. We are part of those that believed on Jesus through the word passed down. And, and this concept of, of oneness and togetherness in the church is, is a common theme in the Bible. It's a common theme throughout the Pauline epistles. Is for example, Romans 12, 5, Paul says, So we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10, Paul scolded the Corinthians for not being together, not being unified, not functioning as one body in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that y'all speak the same thing, and that, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And to the Philippians, he, he said a very similar thing. Philippians 1.27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, though whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And those are just a few of the, the many examples that we could look at throughout the Pauline epistles, throughout the Bible, but there's a very clear biblical principle that we see here. But listen, just practically, you know as well as I do that that's not always easy. <laughs> you know, people can be challenging sometimes. I mean, I love you all, but, you know, Sometimes we don't always see eye to eye. We don't always get along. We don't always, you know, function as one. The problem becomes when we just let that fester. And then we complain. And then we, you know, backbite. And we talk about other people in other groups. And we just do all this. Man, that's just playing right into to Satan's plea, Satan's ploy, and, and, and against God's plea, Jesus' plea to his Father. For us to be one, to be unified, to be a body. And so there's challenges. There's practical challenges because we all have different personalities. We all have this flesh that we're dealing with. So how do we do it? You know, what ties do we need to incorporate into the fabric of this church to keep us functioning as one? Well, that's a very good question. And lucky for us, we get to see those ties as we finish out chapter 4 this morning. So let's look at it together, see what the Lord has to teach us today. We're going to pick things up in verse 31. We'll read down through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 4, verse 31, the Bible says, And when they had prayed, the, the entire group of them, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joses, who was by the apostles, was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having lands, sold it, and brought the money. 
and laid it at the apostles' feet. So let's pray. Let's ask God to, to, to do what only he can do this morning and, and work in our hearts uh, through his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much uh, for the day we have together. Thank you for, for this church. I thank you for everyone that's here, those that can't make it. Pray for them, Lord, that, that you would um, allow them just to continue to spend time with you. And, and Lord, I just pray that you do what only you can do this morning, that your Holy Spirit has free reign in our hearts to mold us into more and more into your image to change us where we need to be changed, and, and Lord, all for your glory. And so I pray that, that that happens this morning, Lord. I pray that everything that is said is true to your word, and, and Lord, I pray that you're honored and glorified through it, through our worship and song, through all that we do uh, together in, in, in this fellowship. Lord, we love you, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so now, if you remember back to chapter 2, um, you might notice some similarities to the end of chapter 2 to the passage that we just read. And from that, that passage at the end of Acts chapter 2, I preached on the church done right, characteristics of a God-glorifying church. Now, there's some differences, there's some nuances, and we'll, we'll look at those as we go through, but there's some differences in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. First of all, Acts chapter 2 was, happened before persecution had started amongst the believers. So here in chapter 4, you know, Peter and John have already been thrown in prison. They've already been threatened. They kind of know what's ahead of them. So the persecution had already started, they, and, and, you know, and they, were, they, they knew it was, more was coming. And so this time of peace here together at the end of chapter 3 is, is short-lived. It won't take long for us to get into chapter 5 before the persecution is ramped up even further. And, and we talked last week about, again, how they, they knew this. They, they saw this coming. This was no surprise. And, and they went and they found themselves in the Psalms. And they prayed back and, and they invoked Psalm chapter 2 into their situation, into their prayer to the Lord. And, and that's a psalm where the first coming and the second coming of Christ are, are very clearly seen. And, seen. And, they, and they didn't miss it at all. They lived through the first coming, obviously, in the crucifixion. And they believed, they knew that Jesus was coming back to set up his kingdom. The only thing they missed was they, they just couldn't see the mystery of the church. And they had no way of, they have no, had no way of seeing that. It wasn't revealed until Paul, right? So they, they couldn't know this, you know, 2,000-year parentheses, you know, was in there. They, they couldn't see that. And so those tribulation prophecies connected to the second coming, but they thought they were on their front door, and so they needed to be tied together tighter than ever, even tighter than Acts chapter 2, even as close as those were. And you see that in this phrase that I've already mentioned, one heart and one soul, found in verse 32. That phrase is not found in chapter 2. In fact, together it's found nowhere else in the Bible, uh, certainly not in the book of Acts. But, but we know they've been in one accord. We've talked about that. And here it's deeper. It's one heart and one soul. And this is interesting because both aspects of that phrase, the one heart aspect and the one soul aspect, they both point to where they think they are in history and, and where they could have been in history if those Jewish rulers had made a different decision about Christ. You see, they weren't necessarily wrong, they just didn't have all the pieces. And I say all that because the phrase one heart is found five times in the Bible. So here in Acts 4.32 and then four other times. And, and those other four times, it is prophetic in connection to following the king in the kingdom, in the millennium. So let me show you. So the first mention is 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 38, and it relates to make David the king. And David as the king is a picture of Christ as the king in the millennium. In 1 Chronicles 12, 38 says, And all these men of war that could keep rank came with a perfect heart to Hebron, to make David king over all of Israel. And all the rest also of Israel were of one heart, to make David king. You see a very similar passage in 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 12. It's one of the other mentions of, of one heart. It's to make one heart to make David as king. And then you see the bigger picture of everything in Jeremiah 32. This is just, just you know, God's awesome and how he just lays everything out and he continues to show us in different ways just his plan and his program. In Jeremiah chapter 32, starting in verse 36, says, and now therefore thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, he's talking about Jerusalem, whereof ye say it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. And if you've been around long, you can probably see where that's going. Prophetically, that's talking about the time of tribulation. But then in verse 37, 
It says, Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger, talking about his own people, and in my fury and in my great wrath. But what's he going to do? I will bring them again into this place, and I will cause them to dwell in safety. And that's pointing to the, the second coming of Christ, the end of the tribulation, when he's going to save Israel. And then starting in verse 38, we, we see that millennial reign. Because what's he going to do? And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them what? One heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. In verse 41, yea, I'll rejoice over them to do good. And I will plant them in this land, surely with my whole heart and with my whole soul. And there's a connection there of the one heart and one soul with God's whole heart and whole soul. And it's, it's a connection with Christ as king and his kingdom. And you can see the other place that that, that word that, or that phrase one heart is found is in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. And it's very similar to this, very similar to what we just read. And they're all in that kingdom context, at least prophetically or doctrinally. And God continues to just give us clues where we're at in the book of Acts. But for those believers that day, they thought the kingdom was to come soon. And so they needed to be together intimately with one heart and then also one soul. There's one other place in the Bible that you see the phrase one soul. And it's in the context of warfare. It's Numbers 31, 28. And levy a tribute unto the Lord of the men of war, which went out to battle, one soul of 500, both of the persons and of the beeves and of the asses and of the sheep. And this was important because if the kingdom is coming, well, tribulation was coming first. And the persecution was going to ramp up, so they needed to be ready and resolute to fight. They absolutely thought the end was in sight. And listen, honestly, we should be able to view things the same way. I think the end is in sight for us too. And if that's true, then that means it's more important than ever for us as a church to be tied and bound together as well. Now, we will not go through the tribulation. God will save us from that. But it doesn't mean that we won't face hard times. We won't face more and more persecution as his return nears. I believe we will. So we should have the same mindset as these apostles and these early believers. And what we see in Acts 4.32 is that they not only had one heart and one soul, it says they had all things common. And the main context in the text is, the, is a physical nature, but... As we're about to see, it wasn't only physical. They had spiritual things in common as well that kept them one. And we need to have these things. These are the ties that bind us together as a church. And it starts with this. It starts with a common purpose. Very simply, it starts with a common purpose. Purpose. These believers were of one heart and one soul as it related to their purpose, not only their possessions. You see, they were mission-minded. And they were about something so much bigger than just themselves. And this common purpose, we, first of all, we can, it can be seen in their prayer. And I think I put that in your outline sheet. It can, this common purpose can be seen in their prayer. We studied that last week and, and we saw how they acknowledge God's worthiness and his wisdom and his word even before they ask anything of him. And when they did ask something of him, it wasn't for the persecution to stop. It was to have boldness to speak and for God to keep doors open. Their prayer request was about their own ability to fulfill the mission, the purpose that God had given them. And we see that God honored that righteous request in verse 31. Look there again. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. So, so we know that God liked their prayer because he, he answered it. And he answered it with great power. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So this common purpose we saw in their prayer, that was mostly last week. What I want to show you today is we can also see it in their fellowship. We can also see it in their fellowship. As they were, there's a key phrase in here, as they were assembled together. 
right? That's what verse 31 says. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were not living their own separate lives. They were sharing life together and not for the purpose of self-fulfillment, for the purpose of the mission. And this is such an important aspect of staying mission-minded. I, I believe one that is often overlooked today. You see, in life and in church, you know, we see pendulum swings, right? And we see pendulum swings in Christianity. And there was a day that, that many of us experienced where you were expected to be at church every time the door was open, which was pretty much all the time. And there was Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and Saturday visitation and probably a couple other times during the week. And and, and, and because of that, you know, there were f- some folks that got burned out because they served with genuine heart intention, but it was, you know, largely based on the guilt of a man or a system, and, 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 and there's a lot of that that didn't work. And so we swung the pendulum the other way. We got rid of Sunday nights. We got rid of Wednesday nights. And we started using phrases like, you know, the building's not the church. We are the church. And that's true. That's true. Don't, don't run me off yet. That's true. But not surprisingly, it was abused. And people took that to mean we can be the church anywhere, at the sports complexes, on the lake, wherever. We don't actually have to show up at a building. And that, too, is a misunderstood truth. Because while the church is absolutely not a building, it is also not an individual person. You cannot be the church on your own. The church is a called out assembly. It is about being together. And as soon as we swung the pendulum, the world and the devil took full advantage. And we cracked the door open And they busted through, and we are where we are today. You see, the biblical truth is that we need to assemble together consistently and regularly because that keeps us bound together in purpose. Now, it shouldn't be legalistic. It doesn't have to be every day. It shouldn't be based on guilt. But it should be based on obedience to God's word. It should be consistent. And if you only show up when you feel like it, if you only show up in the summer when the weather's bad or when the sports season's over, well, then just don't be surprised. That's your choice, truly, and I mean it. That is your choice. Just don't be surprised when things move on without you. And don't get mad about it. We have a mission that we are trying to accomplish. We have a job to do. We can't wait for you. So we're going to keep doing it. You should just learn from the admonition of Acts 4.31 and Hebrews 10.25 that sounds strikingly similar, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, there's built-in accountability and exhortation when we assemble together. So when you quit consistently assembling together, you naturally begin to lose sight of what's important. And you're slowly your mind begins to change and your purpose becomes deflected. And it's so subtle and it's so easy to convince yourself that, you know, it's not so. But, but if history would, would, would say anything, it would say that it's absolutely so. And if lives would say anything, if families, the state of our families would say anything, it would say it's absolutely so. But when you understand this point and you just keep showing up and be a part of what we're doing, the next thing you know, God starts to do something inside of you. And you begin to change. And you begin to become mission-minded like those you're spending time with. And this is because having a common purpose is, is what God's plan is for the church. And so if it's God's plan, God's gonna work it the way he works everything. So that means, and this is point A, the common purpose in the church comes with spirit guidance. If you want the spirit to lead you, man, it's a part of being one together in the body of Christ. 
And of course, from a, from a personal perspective, from an individual perspective, you, we do have to do our part in this. We have to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in order to be filled with and then walk in the spirit. But this is the model we see in Acts chapter 4. They had a, a common purpose, and the result was the spirit guiding and leading them. Right? That, the spirit showed up in a very powerful way in Acts 4.31. And that's the model because God's assumption is that it's going to work that way in your life. How does God work? God always works the same way. He works through his word, he works through his people, and he works through his spirit. So as you are around God's people in consistent assembly, and you put God's word into your heart, his spirit will work. He will lead. He will guide. And that's exactly what happened in our text. We know they had spent time in God's word. They had just prayed it back to him. They were spending time with each other, and the Spirit's power on their life was obvious. Verse 31 says they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and His power shook the place. And there's just such an awesome picture there. Because when was the last time that His power shook you? It shook you to your core that you were a part of something, of, of, of just knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was working. You know, Jen Ross told me a story this week about um, they were out at an evangelistic outreach, I think down in Denison maybe, and they were they're setting up. I think Mike was there and, and some others, and, and they ran into a guy that had come to New Beginnings, and I think had got saved, got his life together, and, and, and talked to him for a little bit, and they re recognized everybody. And then uh, Jen said a little bit later, they were giving popcorn out and that sort of thing. And a little bit later, a little boy came up and, and had like 2 or $3 and tried to give it to Jen. And she was like, no, honey, the, pop, the popcorn's free. You know, you don't have to, you have to pay for the popcorn. And, she, and he was like, no, my dad came to your group, and he's been sober ever since. And he's, try, she, he's trying to pay, give, you know, the, you know, money, you know, for that. And listen, that, that's just something that, that the Holy Spirit did. Because the, the, those people in New Beginnings were f letting the Word of Christ dwell in them ritually and sharing God's Word and, and following the Holy Spirit's leading and the, the Holy Spirit worked in that man's life. Because there's still power in and through him. And it should shake you to your core when you get to be a part of it in a good way. Is being in awe of him and all that he can and will do. You know, Ephesians 3.20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. And of course, that power resides in the Holy Spirit that's in us. And listen, I don't know about you, but I can ask for a lot and I can think, for, think about even more. And is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all of that. In me. Because the power of the Holy Spirit is in me. And in you. If the power of the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is in you, and how incredible is that? And yet, for many Christians, they live their life never experiencing that power in any sort of meaningful way. And it's such a, you know, a small, almost silly example, but never having a little boy come up to them wanting to give him money for how the Spirit of God worked through them to bring about salvation and sobriety in the life of his father. Listen, God's absolutely still a chain breaker. And he wants to use you in that process. But you have to follow him. He wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. That following him is walking in the Spirit. You have to walk in him and you have to follow him to then experience that power. And of course, the power is different today than it was in Acts chapter 4. Right, the power of the Holy Spirit was displayed in the apostles through their ability to heal and perform miracles. That's what Acts chapter, we saw in Acts chapter 3. That's what verse 33 in our text says. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You see, that specific great power of healing and such was given to the apostles for that time in that transition period. It's no longer active today. But the Holy Ghost filled all of them according to verse 31. And we have the promise of the same thing. If we'll just yield to him, if we'll let his word dwell in us, if we'll spend time around God's people, man, his, his spirit will be there to lead. We just have to follow. Ephesians 5.18, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit. You know, we, we get all of the Holy Spirit when we get saved, but the filling 
you know, it comes and goes based on where we're at. Are we, are we walking in the Spirit or are we walking in our flesh? Are we allowing Him to control us or are we controlling ourselves? So the common purpose comes with the Spirit's guidance, but it also comes with sufficient grace. When you have this mindset that I'm about the mission, right, you, you get a promise of, and, and you live your life accordingly in community together. You get a promise of the leading of the Holy Spirit. You also get the promise of grace that is sufficient. Sufficient to endure, sufficient to get through. And we see that back in verse 33. We just looked at it. Because the apostles had great power, but great grace was given to all. And that grace comes through the Holy Spirit. You can connect the all in verse 33 with the all in verse 31. But listen, the context of this grace is not salvation. It's not saving grace. I mean, these folks were already saved. I don't have time to define all that, but... This was about sustaining grace, grace to make it through. That's the context. The context is not about salvation. It's about the ability to endure the spiritual warfare related to the ongoing and upcoming persecution and remaining bold in the face of the enemy. And we talked about this some last week, you know, what does God promise us in our times of need? He, he never promises to, re, to remove the problem, but it, he does promise us grace to help, right? Remember, we read Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right, again, that's, that's not in the context of salvation. Neither is Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians 12.9 about his thorn in the flesh. Paul speaking, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. Paul's already saved here. But, but it's a sustaining grace. It's a sufficient grace. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, God is willing to give sufficient grace. If you're willing to be about the purpose and be about it together as a church, and you let his word dwell in you richly and you assemble together with that mindset, man, God's going to give you grace that you need when you need it, to get through the things you need to get through. When his strength and his power can be displayed through your weakness. Now, if you, if you are about yourself and your own purpose, then this promise doesn't apply. But if you'll just get on board to God's plan and God's program and God's purpose, he will give you that sufficient grace. And listen, even if the suffering you are dealing with is your own fault, even if you bring it about, if you're just willing to get right, he'll still bring that sufficient grace. Now, that was not the case of the believers in Acts. They didn't do anything wrong. It was not the case with Paul, but that was the case with Moses. Moses wasn't allowed to take the children of Israel into the promised land because of his own sin. And we don't have the time to look at that, but you can find that story in Numbers chapter 20. And Moses messed up, and it came with consequences. But that didn't stop him. He kept serving the Lord. He kept leading the people. He didn't pout. He didn't leave the work. He kept on serving and leading just like God wanted him to. And then at the beginning of Deuteronomy, shortly before they were entered to enter the promised land, he asked the Lord one more time if he could go in. And listen to the Lord's response, according to Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 3 and verse 26. But the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, let it suffice thee. Speak no more unto me of this matter. The Lord said, let it suffice thee. It was, this, it was the same answer he gave Paul. The answer was no, but there is sufficient grace to make it okay. There's grace to endure it. There's grace to bear it. And that's what the great grace was about in Acts 4.33. As those folks knew and, and would soon come to know even more. So the first commonality these believers had was a common purpose. But then second, we also see that they had a common priority. They had a common priority, and their priority was on the kingdom to come, not the kingdom of this earth. They were kingdom-focused. Watch how this plays out again in verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, and neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. So we've already talked about how the, the, that aspect, the phrase one heart and one soul, shows their kingdom focus. 
but you also see it in how they viewed their possessions. They didn't even consider them their own. And then look down at verse 34 also. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Now, this is something that we saw in chapter 2 as well. So there was a very similar statements in chapter 2. And it's very interesting to me. It's, it's super interesting. And, and these passages have been used out of context by liberal theologians, even by the likes of Karl Marx. This is not some call for Christian communism today. These Acts believers were looking for and expecting Jesus to return to set up his kingdom then. And it's part of the instruction of Jesus when he was on earth and preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was available. And it was available in him if they would just accept him. And so what he told them, when the kingdom of heaven is at hand, look at Luke 12, starting at verse 22. And we read this, but I want to read it again. So, and he, this is Jesus speaking, and he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, the body is more than raiment. We don't have to worry about it, and yet we still do. We think about it every day, right? We take thought. But then jump down to verse 29. And seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of a doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. Your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom, and all these things shall be added unto you, the, the necessities of life. But then he transitions, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's the kingdom of heaven. So what do you need to do? Sell that ye have and give alms. Provide yourself bags which wax not old, a treasure in heaven that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So these apostles and Acts, they're just following what Jesus had told them to do because the kingdom of heaven was at hand, it was near, it was available to them. So they, didn't, they weren't going to need their possessions for you know, the next 50 years of their life, they didn't think. And the message was, if you treasure and prioritize this life, then you'll never get into the kingdom. And they wanted in. So even for them, it was okay to have possessions. It was okay to have land, but it was not okay to prioritize them over the Lord. And that principle still applies today. Now, it certainly plays out differently. You don't need to go sell your lands and your possessions and come lay them at our feet. I mean, if you want to. I mean, you know, we'll listen. However the Lord leads. But that isn't our calling today. And we know this because the message of Luke 12 and Acts chapter 2 and Acts 4 is much different than the message that Paul preached. Here's what Paul said. Paul said in 1 Timothy 5.8, But if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Compare that verse to Acts 4.35 and tell me it wasn't a different time. There wasn't a dispensational shift in the works. Paul also said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Paul said, if you're going to be lazy and irresponsible, I don't care about your need. Paul even talked about physical family members taking care of each other before the church does. 1 Timothy 5.16, If any man or woman that believeth hath widows, let them relieve them, and, not, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. The church needs to take care of those that don't have family and are on their own. So if you have a family member in need and you have the ability to help them, you should do that before you ask the church to. You see, we don't necessarily have the same calling as these first century believers with, with what we are to do with our possessions. But we absolutely are to have the same priority. And I, and I put this next sentence in your, in your outline sheet, but but here's what I know. We are not to love our things and this world more than we love the Lord. That's a very simple statement. But I know that because Paul also says that. You know, Paul, those verses we just read from Paul about, man, taking care of your own and, and, and working a job and, and being able to take care of your family. But then he also says in Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set, not your, affection, set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. Those aren't a contradiction. 
It's about priority. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. And then down to verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, the truth is we are to focus and, and prioritize the eternal over the temporal. It, it does matter what we prioritize, and it matters what we love. That applies individually, that applies collectively. So as a church, we need this tie to bind us together. We need to prioritize the kingdom of God over the kingdoms of this earth. And it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with having possessions and lands. It just matters where your heart is on all of it. What do you care about the most? What do you truly love? Because if you love this world and the things of this world, then you are no good for the mission. Then you're no good for the mission. That's what Paul said about Demas. Demas, who was once a part of the mission, who was serving the Lord with Paul in 2 Timothy 4.10, says, For Demas hath forsaken me. And why did he forsake him? Having loved this present world. That's, so he, he was no longer good for the mission. He, fors, he forsook Paul. And isn't that the problem with, with many believers today? It, it seems that their priority is on the things of this world and what this world has to offer. And they're lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, according to 2 Timothy 3.4. All right, that's what it says. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. So let me ask you, what is it that you love? Do you love the mission that we have together? Or do you love pleasure? Do you love temporal things more than eternal things? And listen, this is a lesson we all need to learn, especially in, in this day and age and where we live in this world of distractions that we face. It's tough for all of us. The devil knows it. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean we just give in to it. We need to learn to stay focused on what's truly important, on those e eternal investments, eternal priorities. Because the cares of this world will steal it if you're not careful. I stole it from Demas. Don't be a Demas. Don't let that happen. If you're serving the Lord now, don't fall. Don't love this present world to the point that you're no longer good for the mission. So they had a, they had a common purpose. And they had a, a common priority. And if you get this, this down, this last one is just going to come naturally. And it, it's, it's actually an extension of what we just talked about. But lastly, we see they had a common prosperity. So look again at verse 35 down through the end of the chapter. They brought the proceeds from what they sold, and verse 35 says, and, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And, and Joses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted, the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas did this too. This is the first mention of Barnabas in the Bible. We'll see him as we move through the book of Acts. He's a very interesting character. It's, we don't even have time to talk about it, but it's very interesting that Barnabas, as a Levite, is, is bringing his possessions to the apostles, not going to the temple, not doing all that as a Levite. Um, if that makes sense to you, great. If not, it's okay. Just keep, just keep coming. That's what, I, that's what I always say. It's also, he's also of Cyprus. And, and when we get into the missionary journeys of Paul, the very first place Paul goes is Cyprus with Barnabas. But, um, but, but that, that's just an interesting thing. But what we see here, and again, this, this all goes back to our, our last point, uh, but it's a step further. So it's a step further. It's, it's not only priority, it's, it's, it's prosperity, because this gets to our actions based on our priorities, right? This is what you do with your life based on the priorities that you've already determined, what we do with all we've been given. And, and again, for us, it doesn't mean that we give away all of our money and possessions, but we do need to be a giving people. We do need to be a giving people. If you're a Christian, then God has absolutely prospered you. And you may say, listen, I don't, I don't have two nickels to rub together. I'm not even talking about that. No, he's, he maybe you aren't prospered financially, but you certainly are spiritually. And you can give what God has given to you. God's given you some grace. You can give that away. 
So are you willing to give? Are you willing to give back? Are you willing to give of yourself, of your time, your talents, and your treasure? It doesn't, it's not that money doesn't apply. We are to be a part of that. It's all of it. You see, in Acts chapter 4, they all shared the load. If one had need, someone else supplied it. And so that, again, you know, has a specific context for us, and, and we provide physical need, spirit, or financial help at times. But, you know, again, we read those verses from Paul. It's way deeper than that for us. There's more of a spiritual focus. And if people have need, we need to gather around and supply it. And, it's, and they did it because they were in the fight together. And we find it much easier, you will find it much easier to give of yourself when you're in the fight together. If you don't have the same purpose and you don't have the same priorities, this piece is going to be a, you're going to fight it. You're going to fight against it every, every step of the way. Because it doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to you. And it's okay. You need to get the purpose and the priority down first. But, but this is one that you won't like. This is one that will make you mad. But they were in a fight together. And they were all as one carrying the burden of the persecution. So possessions didn't even matter. The fight mattered more. And I think we, we all understand that truth at its core. We absolutely understand it at its core, especially if you've ever been in a dire situation. Or, or let, me, let me explain it this way by asking you a question. Let's say I could give you $10 million today. You could leave this church with $10 million, but to accept it, you only get to live through the end of the month. Would you take it? I mean, you could have one heck of a month. But it wouldn't matter, would it? You see, there's some things that are way more important than money and possessions, and even lost man knows that truth. And again, we're living under different rules than the believers in our text, but this principle still applies. And our willingness to give to the work of the Lord, to be generous in all areas of our life, in our time, in our talents, and our treasure, should take precedence over our selfishness. And this gets to where we were in the last point. Do you love yourself more than you love the Lord? Because your giving proves it. In the context of giving, and this is in the aspect of financial giving, but again, you see it in a much bigger light. 2 Corinthians 8.8 8 says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others to prove the sincerity of your love. And that's in the context of, 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 of giving the church. Paul says, this is an occasion to prove the sincerity of your love. God gives us the opportunity to prove who and what we love by how and what we give. And Paul starts off the verse, I mean, I think it's cool. It says, I speak not by commandment. Of course, that has nothing to do with whether the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write those words. Of course he did. They're just as important. They're just as relevant. They're just as inspired as every other word of Paul. What he's saying is that we're under grace and not law. And, and giving, I mean, even, even if we're talking about financial giving, it's, it's never about amounts. It's, it's never even fully about percentages. Obviously, we have the tithe. That's a biblical principle. But, but biblical giving in the New Testament is not about legalism. It's not according to obligation. It's not according to some prescription. He said, I'm not commanding you. I'm giving you the opportunity to prove your love because giving verifies it. You see, and I, can put, I put this on your outline sheet. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And 2 Corinthians 9 says, every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. You see, giving is just a natural response to all that God has given us. How he's prospered us. And God loves it when we give back to him. He doesn't need it. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. And listen, when we have that attitude, God can really use us in mighty ways and and listen, again, this is so much bigger than, than the financial side, but you guys, man, praise the Lord. You are a great church that understands this. And I, and I thank the Lord for that. And because of that, the work of the Lord continues, and we get to be a part of it. Just, just to give you just a very quick update on some of the things that we're able to do because we have a common prosperity that we give to. We, you know, Mike Valdez was here a few weeks ago, and he was talking about the work that he's going to do um, you know, in, in building the Bible college. And some of you have given to that. Man, and praise the Lord for that. We as a church 
have given him $25,000 to do that because you guys have been faithful in that. The folks in Albania have a big need. Fatmir doesn't have a running car. We're buying him, in, we're buying him a car. It's going to be a used car, but it's going to be a nice used car. We're buying him a car because you guys have been faithful to give. The, the home church in Tirana, they've had the, the, the building is, is old. You know, it was when Jeff was there. Not that that was that long ago, Jeff, but, but, uh, <laughs> but it needed a lot of work. It needed a lot of work, and, and we came together with, with the Decatur Baptist Church last year to, to send them a, a, a big chunk of money to get that going, but, but there's 35000 more that they need to finish it. We're going to give it to them because we can, because you guys have been a part of it. We're doing some things in here. I don't know if you saw the pictures on Facebook. We're redoing our extreme wing because you guys have been faithful to give. We're this may sound silly to some of you, but we're putting in two pickleball courts back here. <laughs> we're putting in the concrete slab, and, and we're, listen, and, and we're going to do some things for outreach on that. And listen, I'm, I'm bound and determined, as much as we are a sports-crazed society, I'm bound and determined to use sports for the glory of the Lord. And we have some facilities, and we're going to do some things ministry-wise with respect to sports, and, and that's going to include pickleball. But listen, we're able to do that things because you guys are faithful. And we have a common prosperity to give. And, and praise the Lord for that. We get to share the Lord together. But again, it's not just about money. And I mean that. It is way deeper than that. The money takes care of itself when we have everything else in line. When we have a common purpose and we have a common priority and we're together as one with the mission that we have, the money takes care of itself. But man, more than anything, I, just, I want you here. I want you with us tonight for prayer as we pray for our kids going to camp as we worship together, as we fellowship together, give your time. Help us in the work of the ministry. Where's your spot? There's a spot for you. We want your talents. And when we're all bound together in these ways, we can keep growing all to God's glory. And we can turn the world upside down because we have the important things in common. Our purpose, our priority, our prosperity. And doesn't he deserve it? Isn't he worthy? I believe he is. And you are too. So let's keep pushing for his glory. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed.